Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Happy New Year, one and all, and welcome to the very first episode of my film music podcast, Soundtracking of 2020. To celebrate, we've got not one, but two guests for you, with two very different coming-of-age tales about young friendship and rebellion. Both, however, have tremendous warmth at their very core. First up is writer, director and actor Taika Waititi, whose new film Jojo Rabbit tells the story of a boy obsessed by Nazism who discovers his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in the attic. Oh yes, and whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. Then we speak to Brian Welsh about his wonderful celebration of 90s dance culture, Beats, which stars Christian Ortega and Lorne MacDonald as two pals getting up for their first outdoor rave. As you'd expect, the soundtrack is an absolute banger. But we begin with Taika and Jojo Rabbit, which is scored by our old friend Michael Giacchino. Now, I must confess to running out of time before we got to talk about what we do in the shadows, which I'm hoping we'll do in sitting number two. But that isn't going to stop me from playing this. It's brilliant intro cue, You're Dead, by Norma Tanaga. Don't sing if you want to live long. They have no use for your song. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and out of this world You'll never get a second chance, plan all your moves in advance Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead, stay dead and out of this world Run fast, don't stand in the sun, there's too much work to be done You're down, you're down, you're down, you're down and out of this world. Taika, it's a bloody privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Um, Happy New Year. Oh, People yes. will be hearing this, you see, on the 1st of January right. 2020. So, yeah. It's a long so time to edit this. So, <laughs> that's how slow I am <laughs> or how bad I am. There's so much I want to talk about, Jojo Rabbit being the new film, obviously, but if you don't mind, I want to go back and talk about your other films as well, because music has played a really important part, really differently and specifically for each of those projects. Yeah. But let's talk about Jojo. Congratulations. It's Thank great. You. It's really... wonder what, as, when this comes out on the yeah. 1st of January, I wonder what other stuff will have happened. I wonder. You, you Father Christmas say, will have come. You could say congratulations on all the stuff that happened in December. Try that. Congratulations on all the nominees that you got in December, Taika. Oh, oh thank you very much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they do that in December, but if, if they do, I'll take it. Because um, this film just delivers on so many levels in terms of, you know, we've come to love your comedy and the way that you tell stories with the use of comedy. But there's a wonderful drama to this as well. Is that easy to write? Do you find that those two sides of things easy to write? Does one help the other? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's relatively easy to write, but the, the issue is finding the balance in the editing later on and post-production. 
So you watch the film and what you thought was like a perfect balance when you wrote the script will turn out to be too heavily weighted towards comedy or irreverence. And then you then the audience will tell you, well, it seems like you're just sort of brushing over this issue or like, you know, well, you don't care or I don't care about the characters because there's just too many jokes. Or it might skew more towards the dramatic side and then it just feels like every other film like this. And yeah, and so, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it really is. And it's been the same with all of my films. It's just finding that balance. And that's why I often take quite a long time to edit the films because I, I test them all again and again and again and try out different versions and yeah. mix things up. So this film took maybe seven or eight months to edit, which is quite, longer than usual. Yeah. And you wrote like, it a long time ago as well, I wrote it in 2011. Wow. Yeah. And then I made three other movies <laughs> in the time since uh, since writing it to shooting it. And did you think? Do you think that experience between writing it and and making it did it change at all? Did the film that you wanted to make back then in two thousand eleven change the film you actually made? Do you think? Um, the script hardly changed at all, mm. but the person who made the film and wrote the script changed. And so I think I had evolved. Where my you know I think I became more mature. So I. I can't tell for sure, but I feel like the film I would have made in 2011, 2012 would have been a, um, I don't know if this is the right word, thinner. Yeah. You know, it would yeah. maybe have had as many layers or, had, or had, had the texture that I think this film has. Yeah. And that comes from someone, you know, turning 43 and then deciding to make this film as opposed to someone being still being in their 30s yeah. and probably needing a few more life lessons uh, <laughs> making the film. I love um, the way that you write for young people in, in your films. And I it's kind of... I'm still a baby. <laughs> but that's kind of almost kind of because you... I've got two kids, six and 11, two boys, and the way they react to things is when you talk to them like a person. Mm -hmm. You don't talk to them like they're a kid. And I feel that that's how you write for the young people in your films. You give them a real voice. Yeah. And so I wondered if that was kind of almost you pulling out you as a kid and putting them in those characters in a way. Yeah, I think you'll find a lot of the a lot of the kids in my films they speak a lot like not in the, one of those sort of precocious, pretentious ways that sometimes in films young people you know you'll find young people speaking like yeah, with like they seem overly mature. <laughs> yeah, it's more my kids think they're more mature and they're still they're not. Whereas I still do that as a grown-up, um, I still I still pretend I know words so I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know someone will say, "Oh, there's some big word," and I'll nod and go, "Absolutely." Oh, yeah. You nailed and then that. I, and then I think I have to go and and I have to go and Google that word because I still after forty years I don't know what that means and I've nodded a lot over my life <laughs> yeah. when I've heard that word. Or I'll just make one up. Or I'll just make up another word. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because all words are made up anyway, so it yeah, doesn't right. matter. They yeah. all made yeah, up. Exactly. So someone had to start yeah. with, with every word. Um, so. And I like because well you know and I think if you've seen most of my my stuff, the children are usually the the roles between children and grown ups are usually switched. So the children are usually like the sane ones and the <laughs> ones who are more reliable and who are trying to make sense of the world and trying to like I guess guide themselves and and the story yeah through this world. And the grown ups are this the, the grown ups are usually just bumbling fools who <laughs> are trying to be cool and they're trying to be liked and they mm. they act more like kids mm. than the kids. You worked with Michael Giacchino on the soundtrack for this film. Yeah. Why was he the right man for the job and what were the kind of conversations that you had with him going into him working on it? Well, Michael Giacchino, does, he is, I'm sure you'll be able to list off all of the things he's done, but 
I guess he's because he's he's grown he grew up with Indiana Jones and and uh, you know and the Star Wars films and all of the films that I grew up with and you know and I think that's where he sort of just like myself has like drawn from you know is, you know from that childhood and that the inspirations that you can very clearly hear in a lot of his work comes from that great heritage of uplifting and emotional and adventurous scores that that we all grew up with, with all of those those great movies in the 70s and 80s and really the only conversation we had was will you do this film and just make it sound like up <laughs> German version of Up. The German version of Up. There's like a lot. There is part of the suite, the JoJo suite, which really shares a lot with that, you know. And I think that, you know, and then I realized, oh, there's actually maybe there's too many similarities in the film itself.
is this uh, this delicate thread through this film with with the music that does feel similar to that. So I'd like to think that he was listening to me. I like that because I'd written down one of the things I'd written down about the score was the kind of there's the kind of tension to it, but the music box element with sort of dark twists to it mm-hmm. and kind of spooky strings that kind of come in as well yeah, which is yeah, kind yeah, of like that's right yeah it's a really technical way of describing it mm, but- <laughs> yeah that's how i describe stuff too so uh, yeah oh, it needs a bit more of the sort of the fiddly little la di da thing going through there what instrument's that you know the one the one that's like in all the other cool movies lovely little moments as well which you kind of feel with the kind of German propaganda music or the the records that that Rosie's listening to Scarlett's character and stuff and Mm -hmm. and how you make those decisions on what that is yeah I mean a lot of those ones were in the edit and that's just trial and error sometimes it's you know the way that we we'd played something on set for her to dance to and the rhythm of how she's moving is just set to this one thing that we had no idea if we could get the rights to or not and then I think it is the same song, actually. But, um, yeah, for a minute they were like, well, let's try some other stuff. And then it was really hard to find other music that had the same rhythm and it just looked like she had she didn't know how to keep a beat. So, <laughs> so you know, so that, even that was hard. But And then the Needle Drops were songs that had been in the script for many years, like right from the very beginning I had written in um, the Tom Waits song. So Heroes was in there right from the very first draft. Gibt uns eine Chance 
doch können wir sie dann für immer und immer. Und wir sind dann Herren für einen Tag. And, and also um, Athalie in Love. That was in there from the beginning. To, to write those things into a script and actually get to have them. Like, yeah, everyone has like, yeah, you, I, I do it often. I, I dream and I say, and then we play this. And then so we have Bowie the and we have music, Tom White. And then, right, yeah. And then the music supervisor usually says, you are dreaming. And then we don't get it. So I was very lucky in that I got those, those tracks. The original opening track, I can't remember what it was supposed to be. It might have been a Nick Cave song. But then when I was shooting, I just remember like, doing some research and watching all this Hitler Youth footage and stuff and like from a lot of these rallies, these Nazi rallies, and just struck me how similar the footage of the crowds looked to Beatlemania with these women crying and fainting and screaming and reaching out for Hitler. And, and it sort of struck me, oh, wow, he was Germany's rock star. He was just like he was the biggest rock star in Europe, if not the world at the time. And what I mean like, you know, by rock star is just someone who's known. Mm. Someone didn't like him or, or hate him. Everyone knew who he was. And that's quite phenomenal. Yeah. From 1933. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to, to have this one personality who is idolized by 50 million people. Particularly as well when the kind of, when you think, you know, when technology back there in terms of how word spreads about someone, not in the same way that it does now in terms of, you know, in other parts of the world. The message about someone can get there in an instant, but this is kind of boggling to think. Yeah, and this travels, and there'll be some like small newsreels, but it wouldn't be the same as yeah. being able to be really informed. So I guess if you're in the States in 1933, 34, when no one really realized just how dark it was going to get, mm. you'd just think, oh, wow, look at this guy, and everyone loves him. He must be really interesting. There must be something great about him. So I think you know, even then, like the – and as we all know, you know, there were factions of Nazis in, in a lot of countries at, you know, yeah. throughout the 30s. So that's why you used the German version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah. Oh, come on, come to me Do it with a best time Oh, come on, come to me Come give me that
originally wrote the script, were you always going to play him? No. So when I wrote, when I, well, I mean, look at me. Look at my hair. Perfect. Look at my face. Look at my skin color. <laughs> no, uh, that was never on my mind. So I had no real idea who would be playing that. And don't get me wrong, I, if you've seen my work, you know that I will find a way of crowbarring myself into a movie <laughs> that I've made. So I, I don't know how, would, I don't I, even know if I thought I could even work out uh, some sort of logical reason for me to be in the movie like oh maybe if my character's from like <laughs> morocco or the mediterranean accidentally like fell out of a plane and landed in germany maybe then i don't know there's no <laughs> real way i ever thought i could be in the film but then when i got to um talking to fox searchlight about making it they not to the point where they would not have made it but that was sort of the message i was getting was that they were only really interested in doing it if i played that character Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Lions, giraffes, zebras, rhinoceroses, octopuses, rhinoctopuses, even the mighty rabbit. Cigarette? Oh, no thanks, I don't smoke. Let me give you some really good advice. Be the rabbit. The humble bunny can outwit all of his enemies. He's brave and sneaky and strong. Be the rabbit. That's awesome, though. It's really great. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that, I mean, those guys, maniacs, but also very smart from what, you know, if you see the films that they make. And so I do trust their opinion. And they did make a good point in that, if it was like a big A-list celebrity playing that Hitler part, it actually detracts from the main point of the film, which is yeah. like about the story of tolerance and understanding and um, and love, you know, between these two kids. And you know, and what happens instead is then you look, you know, the poster is just a picture of this this big actor, and then it becomes the so and so Hitler movie yeah. as opposed to oh, here's this movie where it happens to have this goofy imaginary character. In yeah. It. Um, Yorkie's an amazing character. I Isn't love. I, I mean, yeah, you just write. I mean, I mean, Ricky Baker. I think has got to be one of my favourite film characters of all time. That's great. Fact. He's just. I mean, it was so great to, to watch that film again this week. It was just. Oh, it was extraordinary. Can we talk a little bit about Hunt for the Wilder People? Because yeah. um, the music in that is it's so good, and there's a real beautiful mixture of score, but then needle drops, and you know, and you've got like Leonard Cohen in there, and Nina mm-hmm. Simone, and. And, and stuff like that. And is it Monica? Is that the name of the, the guys that, that did the score? It's yeah. So Monica. Lucas, Samuel, is, and Conrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those guys. So Monica have actually, under a different name, done the scores for my, uh, my, all the films previous to that as well. Oh, wow. So under that, the name, the Phoenix, Phoenix Foundation. Phoenix Foundation. Okay. So, the, so that's those guys. They just decided to change their name <laughs> for that. I think they were trying to like form a, a group that specifically only did uh, composition and score. Yeah. So yeah, so I'd worked with them for you know for years um, on my films, and yeah, and they've got a great. I mean, they're a great like 
don't even know how to describe Phoenix Foundation. Just a great band who use a lot of synthesizers. <laughs> and um, and I think with that film, I was looking for a real kind of sort of interesting Jean-Michel Jarre sort of soundscape thing, to, you know, to go through the, well. through the bush and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they, and that's that's right up their alley. And so it, like, we really like, embraced that stuff. other songs like some of them were some of them were in there for a while but other ones were found like um the alessi brothers i'm not gonna say free bird because that is a completely different song i can't remember what you've got seabird yes there you yep, go seabird fly home. so and that was just a discovery from um the editor this guy tom eagles who's really great at finding just finding music he's got like lots of drives of all the old you know like strange <laughs> things that are either unknown or haven't been known for a long time and he happened to be trawling through and just found that song and we put it in it just seemed it was just so so great there's a road i know i must go even though i tell myself that road is closed So yeah, so the, the, I really love all those discoveries that you make in film. Yeah, you know, where you you realize, oh, this this here could be a, this could be a thing. Like, and th- when we were making Thor, for a long time we had all this William Oniebo stuff in there, where which is so weird to have like in a, a film set in outer space with a space space Viking, <laughs> yeah. but you know he was in there a and everyone loved it, Viking, and then yeah. it just sort of like you know just. 
as things evolve, you sort of realize, oh, it doesn't make much sense anymore. <laughs> and and that and, and Mother's Bow had done such a great job of like creating all these other pieces that just so happened we we decided to stick with him. funny because with Mark I am um, I came across Mark through watching this American kids TV show called Yo Gabba Gabba mm-hmm. with my kids and he was like the kind of the session artist hey I'm Mark and he would like draw a dog and then it's gone who is this guy he's brilliant and then I remember speaking to someone and it was like oh Mark Motherbar did this music and I'm like hold on it's the guy that I watch every morning like six in the morning on Yo Gabba Gabba with my kids yeah yeah he's awesome he's amazing yeah and he has a studio in LA which is like this big circular studio which is like a UFO and uh, <laughs> you sort of walk through there and he'll be yeah it's just full of old vintage wooden synths and <laughs> yeah. strange contraptions and instruments and it's just a I mean he's a real artist and it's such a it's a real it's quite um inspiring to yeah. go and visit him in his space. talk a bit more about Thor but I, there's one thing particular I wanted to talk about Hunt for the World of People which was um, the um, the birthday song yeah. when, when they sing happy birthday to mm. Ricky so how did was that did you was well the- we were shooting the birthday scene and <laughs> so Rima who plays um, Aunt Bella she's a musician and a singer and so she yeah and I had this little synthesizer I brought from home and um, I said okay well we're going to do this little birthday song I want you to sing it and then you do it. and then we did like sort of eight takes or something and um and you know of traditional happy birthday and then it's such a dull song and yeah <laughs> and then the producer Carthew runs in and he he comes in he's like uh we're not allowed to use that song I was like what are you talking about and because and I'd heard this before as well that it was like it'd been yeah you know, still under copyright for you know however many yeah like 100 years or whatever since someone invented it and that's now that's since changed. So 
If anyone's out there listening and wanting to use that in their films, happy birthday. When's your birthday? I can sing it to you now. Yeah, that's Um, So then, so we're like, okay, great. So what are we going to do? Well, why don't we make up a birthday song? And so with me and Rima and and Julian plays Ricky Baker and Sam, and we just all sort of sat there and sort of spent 20 minutes just figuring out what the lyrics to this thing would be and like, you know, and the changes and Mm -hmm. everything. And just did that. And so we invented it. on the spot in a couple so like twenty minutes, and it's I'm so much happier <laughs> that we did that. Ricky Baker, now you are thirteen years old. You are a teenager, and you're as good as gold. Ricky Baker, oh. Ricky Baker, happy birthday! Once rejected, now accepted by me. We're a trifecta. Ricky Baker, ah, 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 Ricky Baker. It's such a beautiful moment in the film. It's just, it's yeah, it's a such a simple thing, but it's like it's kind of just stays with you as well. It's like. It's really, really brilliant. With Thor, was it an easy film to get? You know, you talked about you kind of weaved your way through one and thinking you were going to use one thing and then moving across to the other. Because I think what you did with that film on so many levels helped this whole ending to it as well. Because I was chatting to um, Christopher and Stephen the other night, the writers of the Avengers Endgame and and, um, Infinity War, and they were just like, we wouldn't have had these films had it not been for what Taika did with Thor Ragnarok. All right, in yeah. In terms of you know well, taking with, that, I think with that character with with Chris's with with Thor, and those guys are great because they really, they, I think by the time we finished Thor, we were in just just got into post, and um, they had heard what we had done to Thor, mm-hmm. and like that we had completely changed him and everything, and they were in the middle of like writing. Um, Infinity War and Endgame, and so myself and Brad, the um, producer of um, of Ragnarok, we flew out to Atlanta to see them and talk about like talk about the character yeah. and like you know, and I sort of would do some passes on the um, some of the scenes and say, well, this is how I, you know, you know, if I was writing him for you guys, this is how he would speak and this is the kind of thing he would say, and he's way more irreverent now, and he's like a yeah, he's um, he, he is a completely different character and. And so they, but they were very receptive, and they like, you know, they understood. Okay, well, we've got to now change everything with him, and and then I think, you know, that so they already had ideas at the time anyway for, you know, for this like the dude Thor, and um, you know, later on, and and so they're already, I think, like feeling that anyway. But um, it was really cool that they, you know, that they listened, I guess. And also Chris, is, you know, he has his own opinions about things and he brings a lot to the table in terms of that character. And he's, um, yeah, he's an invaluable source really when it comes to figuring out what would Thor do because he knows the character probably more than anyone. Yeah. What, um, at what point are we going to get a spin-off Krug? Um, Krog. Yeah. Krog, like, yeah. The, the, like the keyboard. Yeah. I can't predict it. I can't predict when that spin-off, but I can imagine it's, it's gonna it's gonna spawn a whole new universe. It's, um, I mean, my, the, we've watched the kind of Cog's best bits. My kids and I. I mean, we're in triple figures now. They freaking love him. Awesome. It's so awesome. good. That's good. He's such a great character. 
Yeah, he's all right. Oh, man. I'm really happy that you uh, that you guys uh, are such big fans of Korg. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Over here, there's a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Korg. I'm kind of like the leader in here. I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock, paper, scissors joke for you. This is my very good friend over here, Meek. He's an insect and has nice for hands. You're a cronin, aren't you? That I am. How'd you end up in here? Oh, well, I tried to start a revolution, but didn't print enough pamphlets, so hardly anyone turned up, except for my mum and her boyfriend, who I hate. As punishment, I was forced to be in here and become a gladiator. Bit of a promotional disaster, that one. But I'm actually organising another revolution. I don't know if you'd be interested in something like that. Do you reckon you'd be interested? For the end of the film, you know, in terms of, like, that's what I think's brilliant, is the way that that you just, I don't know, you kind of almost reminded the whole Marvel lot to not take themselves too seriously mm. of that kind of, you know, that ending of going, oh, it's all right, guys, you know, the foundations and, and then, you know, yeah, and, that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then it's like, oh, and but it's like to have the balls to a, yeah, yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, no, those foundations then... are gone, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, that was, and that's also a testament to Kevin Feige, who's, you know, like he's got a very, um, very receptive mind. He just, you know, he's always looking for something different something that feels like it's a, a thing he, he hasn't seen before. Mm. And so th all that stuff on I was just doing on set just to really – just to screw around really was like – because I knew I, my character was CG. They could just shut me up at any time. So like I was just standing there just like staring out the window with everyone just talking and just saying, yep, now we can always uh, you know rebuild this place and it's going to be a, a haven for all sorts of – all creatures from all around the universe. And then um, – <laughs> But so there was no, there was never an intention a for that to be in the film, but also for <laughs> even for my accent to be in the film. Um, really? No, there was just like I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this, and I guess we'll figure it out later in post, like how he really sounds. And then, but Kevin was like, okay, I love that. It's genius. Let's just keep it in. It's genius. I thought he was nuts, but like I was really happy he did. Yeah. And the marriage as well of the way that that film was kind of, you know, before it was released with that with the use of that. The immigrant song and, and Led Zeppelin as well. Talk about a brilliant marriage of of everything. It was yeah. just kind of like just hit you like a ton of bricks. It's so yeah, great. it's bombastic and yeah. it's really unapologetic as yeah. well. I really love. I love that they let me do a lot of that stuff because it is very. It's actually very Thor. If you read the comics, it's in your face and like there's just constantly just new weird think elements that don't really have any business being in a film or in a comic, but just somehow altogether they do make sense. Like yeah. if you think about, you know, if you think about the poster or all the elements in Thor, it's a woman with antlers fighting a space Viking. There also happens to be a giant wolf and a zombie army and a giant green muscly guy and uh, a drunk woman who used to be in a full female army and um, a guy made of rocks and an insect person and also Jeff Goldblum and then lots of really bright spaceships and basically and a hammer like, yeah and a hammer so basically it's you just you know, it's like asking a bunch of six year olds what would you like in a movie and then just saying yes to everything <laughs> 
and we wouldn't want it any other way. Um, thanks for your time. It's a real pleasure to get to chat to you. And, My pleasure. And I look forward to what's next as well. Thanks, Tiger. Thank you so much. Oh, thank Cheers. you so much. Yeah, oh, nice to meet you. I'll oh, see you. Bye. soundtrack to Thor Ragnarok that is of course Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin rounding off the first part of this bumper New Year soundtracking with Taika Waititi Jojo Rabbit is on general release now and I thoroughly recommend it next up something for the ravers as I talk to Brian Welsh about his joyous indie homage to 90s dance music culture Beats which is available on home ends formats now Set in 1994 in Scotland against the backdrop of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, tells the story of best friends Jono and Spanner as they get ready to party. Scored by the golden filter duo of Penelope Traps and Stephen Hindman, Beats also features numerous classic anthems from the era, including Song of Life by Leftfield. Thank you. 
and welcome to Soundtracking. It's an absolute treat to have you on. Um, such a fan of Beats. Congratulations on that film. Thanks, Eva. So I just want more people to see it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, where, I mean, I know that it's based on Kieran's play yeah. that you co-wrote the screenplay um, with him on that. Yeah. What was it about the story and about these characters that you connected with, I guess, or just wanted to kind of take that journey on further? Sure. Well, I you know, grew up in the 90s in Scotland and rave parties and techno parties were definitely part of my coming of age, if you like. And um, and I've been trying to develop a, a script set in that world for a while and, you know, failing. And then a friend of mine says, oh, you need to go along and see this young man's play that's yeah. happening at the Bush Theatre in London. And I went along and Kieran was doing this one-man performance where it was just him sat at a desk with a microphone a DJ, Johnny Whoop DJ, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and, a, and a, a screen behind him playing all these rave visuals. And it was just a hugely intoxicating and moving experience. And I, I just kind of fell in love with Kieran that night and asked him if he wanted to be my pal and, and develop, the, <laughs> develop the play into a screenplay. And, and so we, we met up a few times after that and eventually, you know, Camilla Bray came on as producer and and so we just worked tirelessly, you know, taking this one-man performance and adapting it for yeah. a 90-minute screenplay. What do you think it is about that music scene and that particular era that has this kind of connection? Like, you know, you kind of, you see, you watch this, and I imagine that a lot of the connection you had that night was that, was the music and yeah. the way that you, I mean, tell me, is it, you know, bringing back memories or feelings or all that kind of stuff? I think it's just that thing of like, you know, young people gathering en masse together and, and, um, and there being this communal energy in the room yeah. and that being something that's really, really powerful and transformative. And, you know, the story takes place in 1994 when you've had years of Tory government and, um, you know this sort of isolationism built in conservative values, but then you you know you have young this, this subculture that's yeah. railing really against those values, and young people gathering on mass to this crazy repetitive music and, yeah. and dancing tribally. And I, 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 you know it wasn't necessarily a, initially a political movement, but there's something sort of inherently political in that, and that felt key to me. It was something Kieran really nailed in the play was setting that story of John Owen Spanner in in that context. Yeah. It's because the way the film opens with the the 94, you know, the criminal justice accident, it's like that, oh yeah. You get a sense already of kind of you're with them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You kind of feel like I'm on your side. Yeah, well there's, you know, the figures of authority trying to kind of... um, Stop them having fun. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, the, your your cast in this, I mean, there's so much to talk about about the film. We'll get onto the music in a second, but but Christian and Lorne mm-hmm. taking on these two brilliant characters and this kind of wonderful thing that I, you know, coming from a wee fishing village in Scotland, kind of thing. Those <laughs> those relationships that you form and those different paths that you're you kind of take for different reasons and things are are it's it's such a beautiful friendship story yes you know in terms of these lads who kind of just love each other but the pools of what's taken them in different kind of routes and stuff as well was it easy to find your spanner and jono 
Oh man, we must have seen every kid in Scotland that wanted <laughs> to act. To be honest, it was like we really, really did. Uh, we spent a long time in in casting, and Lorna came in quite early on and read for Jono initially, and he came back a few times. And I thought, you know what, he might be. He's quite, he's got, he's quite, he's quite a big. You know, he's got this sort of gangly humour mm-hmm. about him, and so we asked him to come back and read for Spanner, and we knew then, oh, we've nailed that. Yeah. The challenge then was trying to find. His buddy, his best pal. And coincidentally, uh, Lauren and Christian studied together and they're best mates in, wow. in real life. And, and Christian was away at that time. He was doing a play in Texas. And, oh, wow. And so it was literally about a week before we were going to shoot. Um, we we're pulling our hair out by this point. And, uh, and he says, oh, my, my mate Christian's coming back for Texas soon do you want to get him into the room and he came in and then immediately that chemistry that we were hoping to spend weeks in rehearsal developing was just instantly there and uh, that was obviously a gift to us the summer's going to go off me and you right the criminal justice and public order bill you heard about this they want to make it illegal to have gatherings around music wholly or predominantly characterised by the omission of a succession of repetitive beats. See this one? Hi, mate, hi. Do you like it? It's bouncing, man. Turn it off. Everybody is in the place. Everybody is in the place. Everybody is in the place. Who are you speaking to? Nobody. Hello, Colin. It's about Jono. He won't be coming in today. He's, uh, he's dead. Aye, we're all pure gutted, like. I'll pass that on. They want us to get in line, but we won't. They want us to be afraid of each other, but we're not. That boy's dragged you down. Just you try and stop it all. (laughs) Where lawlessness prevails, people become a danger to themselves. These are really proper best pals, aren't they? See you on the other side then. One thing I want to touch on might be a weird question was because obviously, I mean, I'm I imagine I'm similar ages with you, and so that whole time I have such kind of fond memories, particularly because I was in Edinburgh at the time at university, and so kind of pure. Oh my god, yeah, Carberry Voltaire, (laughs) uh, City Calf, and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? So it's like I remember as well there being some kind of brilliant rave down on the beach down somewhere where you could see the fourth road but you're in between the two bridges just down on the beach was amazing so that kind of you know you hear those tunes you know that enjoy track particularly for me is just kind of like oh my god and it's I'm instantly transported back there
But for these two, they're of a different generation. Yeah. And I wondered if it was something you spoke to them about, about in terms of, did they have a similar thing at all when they were growing up of a music scene that had this kind of power over them or there was this kind of, you know, that kind of communal thing of kind of coming together at festivals or all that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, they both... Um well, J.D. Twitch, who uh, one half of Optimo, who did the music, you know, he still plays in Glasgow and, yeah. and Edinburgh every uh, week, and and they both loved that music yeah. al- already. I mean, obviously, the film introduced them a whole bank of new stuff, yeah. but but you know, I think young people still go out and have the same those same experiences, albeit it's in a kind of more. Uh, licensed commercial venues. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Where did you start with the music for it? Because obviously there was a precedence there with the with the stage play and, yeah. and, and how Kieran had had brilliantly kind of you know worked the music as part of the narrative sort of thing. But when you were thinking about and writing the script together, how did you sort of work out a what songs you were going to use, where the music would fit, but then also working on a score side of things as well? Yeah, sure. So we. Um some of the tracks that were in the play made it into the film, like Dominator, the moment when the police police come in and don't, you know, you got the wild kind of sirens of Dominator playing. That we we always knew that that was that was going to be part of it, and luck, luckily it's a big t- track for Twitch as well, so he was totally sold on that. process with, with Twitch we, I, had, I had a whole bank of archive material from back in the day, there was a crew called Desert Storm um, who used to put on free parties and um, and they used to film the parties so that if the police showed up they would say oh we're making a music video, that was kind of the, the, the excuse Amazing. and so we had all of this stuff and so I made this like 90 minute cut which had something of the kind of shape of the film in terms of its energy and then um, and then Twitch did some like live jams to that and so a lot of the the uh, the music from there kept then became pop embedded in the script and um, and then we also did an animatic of the film and really really honed on in on the tracks that we wanted to use so when it came to shooting the rave 
we had quite a lot of those. So you had to have that organised in advance then, I imagine. Yeah, and we also wanted to record the music in the space live. So when you watch it, it's not all like post-synced. It's yeah. all like actually recorded in the yeah. space. So you've got the the, the textures of the, the crowd and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Was that easy to do? It was terrifying. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. Because we were like, okay, you know, the reason that most party films look a bit rubbish in, in films is because start the music you get all the background dancing and then you stop you stop the music they pretend dance and then you record the dialogue but we were like no no we're going to put on a real rave with a thousand people and we'll just work our way around the crowds um and it, yeah, it is a risk because you want everyone to come in nineties clothes. You want the dancing to be like authentically nineties, and <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and we're just really. I mean, we had such a great crew that we, we were really lucky that it all came together. But you know, we blew most of the budget on that night. So if it hadn't worked, <laughs> the best then, party in the world. I, and if it hadn't it's worked, like having the rap party before you've yeah, even yeah, started yeah, filming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the police even showed up at the end. Did they? Shut us, shut us down. Uh, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But you had the cameras, so you were yeah, like, right, we're, yeah, 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 we're exactly. not filming a music video, we're filming a film. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And But what about in terms of like kind of, you know, you had to kind of almost, I guess, sort of put a stamp on those tracks that you were going to use within that environment and stuff. Was it easy to get all that clearance and all that kind of stuff as well? Because that's a whole other world, isn't well, it? Well, I need to give a big shout out to Phil Canning, who... Um who who worked tirelessly going around parties and you know schmoozing people and and very luckily the prodigy came on board right at the beginning you know for something that was reasonable and we could we could do for a small indie film and yeah. then after that it was much easier to then go to whoever it was Richie Houghton or Carl Craig and say yeah. you know well the prodigy and yeah, so yeah yeah um, a couple of people have had that similar thing we spoke to this brilliant first time film director and she'd uh, I think it was REM. She'd managed to get. Wow. And then it was, no, it was, I'll tell you what, it was Sam Taylor Johnson right. with her um, own little pieces. And uh, she managed okay. to get Smashing Pumpkins because they liked the script and oh, they loved the nice, book. Nice. And then it was like, if you've got Smashing Pumpkins, then you, you know, it's like, come on, they've done it yeah, for yeah, like yeah. that. You can't sort of start charging. It's up. also about having someone get managed to get those you know, have that relationship yeah. and get there. And that's what Phil was, was really good at, yeah. I mean, Prodigy was such an important part of that whole scene anyway, do you yeah. know what I mean? So you kind of, it's like they're almost a character within it, aren't they, yeah. in terms of like, they were so pr- sort of present at that time.
yeah, and that first first album for me is just like I still listen to that all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How much you use in the film? Do you think or your experience? Probably a bit more than I'd like to admit, to be honest. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like that scene that happens in the phone box that that was that actually happened to me. Oh man. <laughs> Um, that's a lovely thing to document though do you know what I mean it's like and I think that that's where there's so much heart in this film it's so emotional it really really is and I think that that's because it's kind of it's come from truth it's come from a real place and real experiences as well and Kieran's writing you know he's we just had we did so much fun doing the dialogue and you know it feels like it's a, coming from real Scottish voices yeah. and I think that the boys did really good at carrying that off you know? did you encourage um, like improvisation with it or was it more you kind of sticking to script I have more? to say we, st- we, did, we did we stuck to the script a lot I mean we shot quite a lot more you know we we, we, shot, we shot quite a lot more so, um, but yeah we were, were you know, in rehearsals, we were doing a lot of improvisation, but we kept coming back to the script, and I think that's you know a testament to sort of the hard work that Kieran and I put into it. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about kind of you know that music that's not those tracks within it and stuff? And how how did you navigate that? And how did you know that you needed that and where you needed that? Do you mean this the score? Yeah, yeah yes. Well, it, I've, I've always. It was it was clear during the edit that we were needed to find something that was more written to picture, yeah. um, f- and and that was really connected to the boys' friendship and their story and their their heart and the the, the love story really between the two of them. So we worked with the Golden Filter, um, who Keith Keith suggested he'd worked with them a bit, Penelope and Stephen, and they just captured something really um, subtle but nuanced and 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 quite beautiful, I think. And it was um, you know a combination of using some of some of those sounds that you associate and instrumentation that you associate with techno music, but yeah. but also with um, you know, piano and and um, a bit more emotion. I think. Yeah.
did you give them the script to read and then and or how had you shot stuff and showed them well, kind of rough edits and they, stuff? They came on. They would cut picture by that point, yeah. and we would we'd been temping with a few little things. And um, do you mind me asking what? Oh, it's always quite interesting because there's this, there's a kind of temp music has its whole this whole thing where sometimes composers hate it because sometimes directors yeah, go, yeah. "Can you just do me something that's a bit like this?" Yeah, no, or we they, didn't do that. Yeah. I mean. But it's a good way of working out what works and what doesn't, isn't it? I I can't remember. It was a real mix of things. And some of the tracks were, they were like classical pieces that we'd slowed right down. Yeah. And when I say slowed down, I mean like thousands percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they took on this sort of uh, droney, but um, string based quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barry Jenkins has got this great thing that he used called Chopped and Screwed. Oh, yeah. Where he kind of like sort of takes like a Fleetwood Mac is a big one that you kind of slow it right down and you just like distort it and mess with it. And it's kind of such a clever way of still getting the emotion of a particular piece of music, but messing with it in a way that you kind of almost like can't quite recognise it. Oh, so he he does that as well, does he? Yeah, he did that Moonlight. Yeah. It's a whole scene, apparently. Like, oh, okay. that is, uh, I think the, the origins of it are down in Florida, where he grew up, sort of thing. It was a big thing that was done within the hip-hop scene down there and all that uh, kind of stuff as well. Okay. So it was like, right. oh, I like that when I learned something new about like, oh, that's cool. little tricks of the trade and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. No, as well. I think it was Rob, the editor, that, that suggested it. Yeah, It's good. Because it's that thing, you can, recommendations are such a big thing as well, particularly with people that you trust and that you, you're working with as well. And, I, I don't know, when you're so involved in something, when you're writing it, when you're directing it, and then to have a, a kind of different pair of eyes coming in and thinking, well, that could work, you know. So looking at Penelope and Stephen has been... I don't yeah. know if he talked to you what they, he thought was the... why he thought they were right for it. They just kind of... We just... We talked a lot about what we wanted from from it emotionally, and then we... 
it was just one of those things of like batting things backwards and forwards and quite often when you're writing score you know a piece you know you think that a piece of music's right for one one scene but it it feels a bit can feel a bit on the nose but it still captures something about the essence of this this the spirit of what you're doing and then yeah. you know you move that to the first act instead of the third act and it's like oh bang then that, yeah. that works so it's always an organic thing particularly in the edit Have you had much feedback from the the artists that you've used in the film in terms of the film as a whole um, and that scene because it's held with a, such love, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. Sort of adoration from a little bit. I mean, I've, we heard that um, Liam from the Prodigy liked the film, so that was that was nice. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and not that you're making it for for the artists in the film, but because it's no, such no, a big no, but part it, no, story. I mean it meant a lot to me to know that they felt because these, you know, that they felt that we'd done something truthful and honest, yeah. and that that, uh, that captured it. There was there's a whole kind of I don't even know if Orbital have seen it yet, but the way that they came to the film was quite funny because a friend we'd, we'd put Belfast on, and then a friend of ours, um, for some reason we couldn't get it cleared, but a friend of ours, Russ from Aberdeen had given uh, the Orbital guys a kazoo, which it, at a night they had in Aberdeen back in like 1987 or 88 <laughs> when they just started out. And, the, and this kazoo had ended up on the sleeve for Belfast. They took a picture of the kazoo and put it on the sleeve for Belfast oh my God. and then sent it to him and said, here's your kazoo on the, on the album. And so 25 years later, he, uh, he tapped them and said, uh, remember that favour that I gave you, the kazoo? Do you <laughs> Any can chance we, we can, any chance we can use your track in this film that I've been helping Did they out say with. yeah? They actually re-recorded Belfast <gasps> for us because we couldn't we couldn't get it cleared, so they did us a, a, a special one-off.
amazing. Which I think's on the CD soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. The soundtrack's incredible. Yeah. If there's anybody who kind of wants a deep dive in a brilliant kind of way to that whole scene, the soundtrack for the film is just extraordinary. Thanks. Oh, it's so good. Was that fun to put together as well? Really good fun. And, you know, I really love Keith Twitch and... You know, again, it was one of those things we just must have listened to, you know, two thousand pieces of music, and and uh, and you're always just trying to distill, distill down to the the essence of what you're doing, and it, it was it was good, and, and you know, we wanted the film to feel like a mixtape in a funny kind of way, so yeah. there's a lot of like tracks playing over each other and samples and loops, and um, it's got a bit of an acid techno mixtape feel to it, you know. It's so good. Reminds yeah. me of what we used to when I used to work at St Stephen Street Bar and in Edinburgh when we'd be in on a Sunday morning probably coming straight to work right. and putting like a, like almost having continuing the sort of night out before everybody came in sort of get the table set up that's what I was listening to <laughs> exactly that and um, what's next do you know uh, I'm working with Camilla and Kieran uh, we're developing a couple of treatments at the moment so Great. you know try to write something that's hopefully will get made oh. and um Aye, hopefully come January we'll have, well, three treatments really and, and then we'll, we'll make a decision which one we're going to take the script stage. Yeah. So, aye. How is Black Mirror as well? Because we've had quite a few people on who've worked on... on kind Black of, Mirror? Yeah. What was that experience like? God, it's so long ago now. But I was, so what I did, season? What I did season? the very first uh, first season. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So when it was still, still at Channel 4. Yeah. Um, and I was just out of film school and it was like... Bloody hell, that's an amazing really, thing to get straight out yeah, of film. I mean, well, it wasn't what it is now, but but what it did back then is why it became what yeah, it is yeah, now. Yeah, totally. You know I, mean? I mean, and it felt like we were doing some... You know, it's, it was quite early on and prophetic in so many ways when you think of... I did the episode with um, the memory grain where yeah. the, the uh, you know you play back the memories and the eye and it was before Google Glasses and before um, Facebook timeline and Charlie is really he really has a funny weird way of being able to see what's what's, what's coming in the future with technology and um, it was great you know it was like making a film but you know like a, a, sh- a shorter format yeah. and you know working with Toby Carroll and Jodie Whittaker and we just treated it like we were making making a film and that was a really good training ground for me in terms of like because I was an editor before that I'd, I'd done a film at film school mm-hmm. called In Our Name but I was an editor before that and so you know I started to learn about lenses and things like that and <laughs> You know, technical what, stuff. what a jib is and a best boy and all that you know. and then I guess when, I mean having that experience as an editor though music was very much part of that world because oh, in always, the edit is the kind of you know the sort of it's where that that marriage of those two things is really solidified really isn't it totally I'm a frustrated musician really like, that, was, that was really where I always wanted is to it? be yeah 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 and then um, editing I guess a lot of the principles of like mixing music just dovetail perfectly yeah. with, with cutting picture and 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 sound amazing um well beats i just think it's a it's a such a beautiful and clever and funny and just poignant and great film so so great to have you on to talk about thank it Brian. You. Thank that means you so a lot much. coming for you thank you oh, bless. thanks brian <laughs> cheers mate okay. thank you
soundtrack to Brian Welsh's Beats, that's track four by LFO, concluding the very first soundtracking of a new decade. My huge thanks to Brian and Taika Watiti for taking the time to talk to us. That's a lot of teas. Jojo Rabbit is in cinemas now with Beats available to stream through various channels at your leisure. We also wanted to say a special thanks to Penelope and Stephen from The Golden Filter who sent us their as yet unreleased cues from the score to Beats without which, well, we'd have been in a bit of a pickle. Head to edithbowman.com or your preferred podcast provider to catch up with all of our previous episodes. And please do subscribe whilst you're there. Keep up with the latest news by following us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up, thoroughly excited to bring you my chat with the wonderful Sam Mendes. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.